The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. scripture reading this morning is in the gospel of John, John 15, verses 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already, You are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, You can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Evan, you guys can have a seat. Thanks for reading the long passage. It's one of those we've considered breaking it up, but we're just going to go for it. Well, I would encourage you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 15, or what uh, Kevin just read. We're going to be looking at all of those verses, so there's a lot to cover in just a a little bit of time. When we started the Upper Room Discourse, uh, we started by setting the scene uh, so that we can picture it in our mind's eye of what it looked like. We said that there was 12 men entered entered into a room all by themselves, and there was a table set before them. It was a Passover meal. We've seen this scene depicted in famous paintings. We can picture them lounging together as we got to look at where John laid his head back on Jesus to ask him a question. But one of the things that we've seen in this scene is that it has movement throughout. 
And every time there's movement, the scene changes, the focus changes. We almost enter kind of a, a, a new sub-scene to this overarching scene with the upper room discourse. The first movement that we saw was when Jesus got up from the table and all of his disciples were like, uh, what are you doing? And he took off his outer garments and put on a towel and he began to wash his disciples' feet. In that scene, what we got to see was a parable of the gospel. We got to see Christ's uh, humility and service to his disciples where it's like, listen, I came to do what only I can do, which is wash your feet. We then saw in the next movement when Judas departed from the room, Jesus began to speak with these 12 disciples as friends. That's what we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks, looking at them and saying, okay, you 11, you are going to stay with me. Well, this morning, we get another moment of movement. Last week, I actually didn't get to it in the preaching, but I'll just reference it here. The last sentence in chapter 14 says this, rise, let us go from here. There's movement once again in this story. Now, what does that mean? Much, much ink actually has been uh, kind of spilt trying to figure out what in the world is being said here. Well, one group of people thinks that Jesus is saying, when I'm done speaking to you, we're going to go. So it's uh, kind of a future tense. We're going to leave this room eventually. Others actually think that there's an immediate departure for the garden. Immediately, these disciples get up and they begin to walk towards the garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, yeah, whatever, that, that garden. The garden where he will be arrested, the garden where, where he will be betrayed, the garden where most of his disciples will be scattered. Well, whether the movement happens here or not, that ultimately doesn't matter. I'm not going to go into why I, I think it does. I do actually think he's walking here. But the important thing to notice is that Jesus' focus changes. It changes from looking directly at these men focusing on them personally and intimately, having a conversation with just them. This is what you need to hear. This is what your hearts need to be reminded of. The focus changes towards Jesus focusing them, focusing them on the world around them. You see, one of the reasons why I think that Jesus was actually walking is that he was walking in the world, talking about what it means to live for Christ in the world. It's really easy to live for Christ in safe places. It's really easy to follow God's law in Christian environments. It's really easy to stop sinning in church, is it not? Like we know what we should and should not say in this place. We know how we should act. We know how we should dress. We know how we should carry ourselves. We know what we can admit to and what we can't, what we shouldn't admit to. We know what music we can say is our favorite and what's actually not, what, what, what movies we've watched recently and what we have not. I mean, we know how to temper ourselves in the safe places, in these religious places. I think of the students. They just got back from summer camp. Being a student ministries pastor, I, uh, for a while, I really appreciate summer camps. I appreciate those moments when you can get out of the world and focus, have a direct time of focusing on Christ, on the gospel, on, on the body of Christ. But we have to be honest about something. Real life doesn't happen there. Real life doesn't happen at summer camp. Yes, the Lord uses those spaces, uses these religiously oriented spaces like church to build up our faith and to remind us of things. But we have to take that faith. We have to take that knowledge, we have to take that belief, we have to take that trust out into the real world. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. I think he's taking his disciples on a walk towards the garden and is displaying to them, listen, you not only have to live for me 
in that upper room. But you have to live for me out here. It's really sad, but I think a lot of Christians only want to live for Christ in the safe places, in the safe environments. I think that there's some Christians that want to build walls up and think, okay, we shouldn't venture out. We shouldn't engage with people who think and believe differently from us. We should only and always live our life in kind of the safety of the upper room, if you will. But Christ never called us to that. No, Christ called us to go into all the world. Christ said that we don't have to fear the the powers and the principalities. God said that we're going to walk through the valleys of the shadow of death. But he will be with us. So the question that can be asked as we're again venturing into John 15 is how do we make it in the real world living for Jesus? That's what we get to look at this morning in John 15. John 15 is a very famous passage. It is uh, the the last of the I am statements. We're going to get to look at that. There's some paradox going on here. Um, I know that the whole abide in me as I abide in you has um, been one of those um, more famous passages that people have rested in. Maybe even John 15 is your favorite passage. So I hope that I can do it justice for us this morning. But as we venture into this, we have an opportunity to look at many of the aspects in the gospel that, that many of the aspects that we've previously looked at in this gospel. What we're going to see is that John starts to repeat himself and Jesus starts to repeat himself because there's a couple of consistent themes that we see come up here in John 15. The first of which I've already said it, the first aspect that we see kind of reappear here is the last of the I am statements. We've got to see the seven of them. This is the seventh this morning. I just want to cover all of them one last time. These are the I am statements where Jesus is describing, listen, uh, as, as the nation of Israel was attuned at knowing God's uh, name. This goes back to uh, Exodus 36, no, Exodus 3. God, who are you? He says, I am who I am. When Jesus is walking around the streets and going, I am this, it says, I am the bread of life was the first one that we got to look at all the way back in John 6. This bread that sustains not our physical life, but Christ offers and sustains our spiritual life. He said in John 8, I am the light of the world, that Christ offers himself as this guiding light. In John 10, we saw that, that Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep, that he protects his followers. In John 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. This was actually referenced last night at Claire's funeral, that death is not the final word for those who are in Christ. In John 10, again, he says, I am the good shepherd, that Jesus is committed to caring and for watching over those who are his. And then in John 14, number six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's very simple. Jesus is the only way to God. And then the seventh, I am the true vine. Abiding in Christ enables his life to flow in us and through us, and we can't help but bear fruit and honor the Father. That's what we get to look at. I just want to read the next couple of, uh, the, the, the first few verses again as we look at this chapter. It says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear fruit. Now already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you Unless you abide in me, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, it is he that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. 
this vine imagery that's kind of just all of a sudden comes up. Like, okay, where'd this vine imagery come from? It's kind of commonplace in this time and culture. Now, one of the um, ideas is actually that Jesus, again, as he's walking down to the garden, is walking the steps of the temple, and it is believed that vines were growing up the walls of the temple, so it could almost be as Jesus is walking with his disciples, and he's putting his hand on the wall saying, I am the vine and you are the branches. But this, this vine idea in this agriculture, um, in this agrarian culture, it was commonplace for them. People knew what it looked like and what it meant to grow plants. People knew what it, what it meant to grow grapes in particular, which is really what this vine is taking place here. But there's something even deeper behind this vine analogy. Because throughout the Old Testament, language of the vine was used. But the vine that was used, the vine that was being described was the vine that was Israel. Turn to Psalm 80 for a second. We're going to take a few minutes. I'll, I'll show you one of them, kind of the most popular of them all. I'm going to just read some for you. This is, this is a psalm where David is crying out saying, okay, restore us, O God, because he, he recognizes that God's face and, and God's hand is not on Israel at the moment. This is verse 3. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and, and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among ourselves. I mean, this is David saying, can you please restore the glory that you promised us as the nation of Israel? Because our enemies here are mocking us. Verse 7, restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine upon us and be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the lands. The mountains were covered with its shade and mighty cedars with its branches. You set out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the rivers. Why have you then broken down its walls so that all who pass along may pluck the fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all who move in the fields feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from the heavens and see. Have regard for this vine. The stock that your right hand planted and the sun whom you've made strong for yourselves, they have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish all that rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. I'll just finish it. Then you shall not turn back to you. Give us life that we may call upon your name. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Notice this imagery that David is using. He's saying, listen, you brought the nation of Israel, you brought Moses, you brought Joshua, you, got, you brought the people out of the land of Egypt and you promised us a land flowing with milk and honey. You promised us Canaan. Now, David is standing in Jerusalem. He's standing in the, in the land of Canaan. And so he's saying, listen, you promised us this land. It looked like you planted us here. And yet when we look around, we see that we are dying. It's not working, Lord. See, the nation of Israel knew that they were the vine. They knew that, well, we need to be planted by God. They, they knew that the Lord through us is going to give us fruit. But here in this I am statement, what Jesus says is, I am the true Israel. I'm the vine. See, Israel had been trying really, really, really hard to get the Lord's blessing. 
they had been needling over the law. They've been trying to just apply themselves through their obedience and passion and desires. I've got to be able to stay in God's good graces. I mean, this is what the Pharisees had been doing, which is why they built all these walls around the, all, God's law because we just want to honor God. Good things, bad intentions. And here Jesus comes in and says, you're following the wrong vine. I'm the vine. I'm the true vine. This is what the Father's saying. I'm not. Jesus is. I'm, and, and the Father is the vine dresser. Again, these people who live in this agrarian culture are hearing this and understand that the Father owned the vineyard and was responsible for its care and its nurture and ultimately its productivity. You see these grapevines that they would immediately have in their minds and we can have are notoriously intense to grow. You have to, there, you have to spend so much time and energy to, to produce this fruit, to produce these grapes that are on the vine. I mean, some plants are self-sustaining, are they not? Like the weeds in our lawn that we just can't get rid of because we keep pulling them up and they just keep coming back. I mean, I've got this one vine that's up against the side of my house that I think every year for the last four years I've tried to kill. It's still coming back. I mean, there's this huge bush on the corner this time and we took all the green stuff down. It'll come back. I know it because I can't kill this thing. Grapevines aren't that way. No, you have to prune them. You have to weed them. You have to in, in intensely take care of them, not only in the growing season, but in the off season. I mean, there's a thing that you have to do for each and every season to make sure that the fruit can be produced at the right time. And these people knew that. But look at what Jesus points them to. He points them to this pruning. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear fruit. Now, they're immediately going to go to this pruning thing. They're, they're going to be able to see that person in their mind's eye actively walking through the vineyard doing the cutting. And when, when we hear pruning, which, you know, pruning, if, if, if you want a, a definition, means to trim by cutting away dead or overgrown branches or stems, especially to increase fruitfulness and growth. I mean, pruning is a process of strengthening the vine. It's a process of strengthening this plant. And when we think of pruning and we look at the vine, we go, that, yeah, that makes sense, kind of. I mean, we see it work. We, we cut away, and magically it comes back stronger and better. And so with these vines, I understood we're going to cut away the dead branches. We're going to cut away the smaller branches. We're going to cut away some of the branches so that the main vine can be healthier and we can produce more fruit. Now, it's really easy for me to talk about pruning as it relates to the plant. Jesus isn't talking about a plant. He's talking about our life. And he's saying, listen, if I'm the vine and my father's the vine dresser and you are in me, which we're going to get to, I'm going to prune you. I'm going to cut away. We see this language used elsewhere in scripture, like in Hebrews 12, speaking about the Lord's discipline. And he disciplines those whom he loves. It was a parent I know my child, when I discipline one of them, they, they don't always see it as love, but it's love. They don't see it as love because they're a child, because they don't see the world. They don't see why this foolishness or this mistake or even this sin needs to be disciplined so that it doesn't grow into something worse. The Father knows that about you. I'm sure if you were to ask the vine if it could talk in some really weird Veggie Tales movie, 
it would say, stop it. I like that part of me. Wait a minute, that part will bear fruit. Hang on, God, I think you're cutting the wrong branch. Or they'll say, but I've tried really hard to cultivate that branch. Why are you taking it from me? But we do that same thing. When the Lord goes to work in our life, when he does things that we don't like, when he prunes us in ways that really hurt us, and we step back and we go, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Why are you hurting me? Why are you doing this? Is it because you're angry with me? Is it because you, you hate me? The vine dresser doesn't hate the vine. No, he loves the vine. And he knows better than the vine what needs to be cut away so that it can produce more fruit, so that it can be stronger, so that it can be healthier, so that it can be better. The Lord might be pruning something in your life right now that you hate because you've held on to it as an idol, because you've cherished it, because it's been that branch that you love. You've been that branch, it's been that branch that you've protected and you don't want it to be cut away. And you're complaining and you're hurting, you're crying out to him, why God is this happening? The vine dresser knows best. You see, the vine dresser understands the difference between hurt that leads to harm and hurt that leads to life. When the vine dresser, the gardener, going back to the, the actual plant, cuts away, yes, it looks like destruction. It hurts. But it doesn't, bring, doesn't lead to death. It leads to better life, stronger life, healthier life. Same thing in our lives. We go through these moments, maybe you've experienced them, I've definitely experienced them, where I will look back after some episode, some journey, some long trial that I've had, and in the moments of it, I'm going, where are you, God? Why are you doing this to me? This is terrible. And I'll look back, and I'll say, thank you. Thank you for that. Because I didn't realize the growth that it was going to give me. One of the most painful things that I've ever gone through in life was called seminary. Seminary is basically masters, a, a, a master's program for pastors, and it is, um, it is pretty intense. And for us, Amy and I, we moved to California. We had both of our girls in a really short period of time, um, young family, young kids, trying to just figure out life. Southern California, not making a whole lot of money, going to class, working, just, just this, this, this time we're in the midst of it. Both Amy and I are like, what is happening? I look back on that time now. I'm so thankful for it. Not for the pain, I mean, kind of for the pain, but because of what it, how it strengthened us, how it prepared us for future struggles, how it allowed us to see that God actually is faithful. Again, that's part of the pruning process of trusting the vine dresser, trusting the gardener, trusting God that he knows best. Because we get something cut off of us and we think, that's it. Our life is over. I needed that. That was essential. I'm going to bleed out. I don't, you know, all of the other excuses. And then we turn around and go, oh, I'm stronger because of it. So here, when Jesus is walking through or is walking to the garden with his disciples and he gets to this point he's looking at them and he's saying listen 
as you live your life for me, as you are a Christian living in this world, this is why I think he's walking. He's saying, we're going to get you out of the upper room and we're going to live in real life. As you're walking this life for me with the struggles of this world, with the brokenness around us, with the, with the, the, the frailties of our own body and mind, I'm going to prune you. And you need to trust me that that is what you need in that moment. Now, here's what's interesting. The word prune actually means to cleanse, to cleanse from defilement, to cleanse from disease, to cleanse from the old growth so that it doesn't suck the energy of the new growth. And I only point that out because that's where he goes in verse 3. You are already clean. Because of the word that I have spoken to you, abide in me and I in you. As the branches cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abide in me and I in you, it is he who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus takes his disciples because they hear that and they go, oh my goodness, there's going to be pruning. There's going to be pain. There's going to be difficulties where Jesus says, Listen, you're already clean. You're already cleansed. You're already good. Why? Because you're in me. Now, this is definitely pointing back to Israel, where Israel was trying to cleanse themselves, trying to act like a vine in order to make them a vine. They were trying to um, obey God's law so that they could abide in God. But what Jesus points to is this kind of the, the, the second paradox of the gospel is that we get to abide in God before we do anything for him. God cleanses us, regenerates our soul, calls us new, grafts us into Christ before we've done anything good. Because that's the first step of the gospel. When he regenerates your life, when he opens your eyes, when he justifies you, it's, it's not you can now be justified so that you can abide in Christ one day. No, it is I am going to put you into the vine. I'm going to graft you into this place. That's this language that's being used here. But there's, there's kind of a, a, a second reality that I wanted to point out, the paradox of the gospel that, that we've looked at. There's a paradox around this concept of, of abiding. Abiding is a passive term. Abiding simply means to remain or continue. These verses have been used to talk about resting in Christ. I'm not going to do that this morning for us. But the paradox of the gospel is that the language that's being used here is that you should abide and then go. You should remain while going. How do you do that? How do you remain while going? How do you passively stay in one spot and go at the same time? That's where this passage takes us for the rest of our time this morning. I want to maybe use some, some clear gospel language that we would be used to um, around here to kind of expound upon what is being des described here. We know and love that we are justified, and, and hear these words, we are justified apart from works. This is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. But there's a second part of that verse that we rarely point to, or most pastors, it's, it, you know, the 289 is the famous part. There's the verse 10 part. Because we're justified apart from works, but we're justified unto works. 
for we are his workmanship. This is Ephesians 2.10. Created in Christ Jesus for good works that, which God prepared, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's where Jesus takes us in this passage. What does he call us to? He says, remain in God's love. And how do we do that? How do we remain in God's love? Well, the same way that Jesus remained in God's love. Obey him. Just look at verses 9 through 15. I'm not going to reread them for the sake of, of time. But look, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you and abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So these disciples here, abide in me and I in you, and, and when you abide in me, you will remain there. But then he calls us to something, and he calls us to obedience. And what he calls us to is to be known for three things. First, to be known for our love. Second, to be known for our joy. And third, to be known for our sacrifice. Again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to reread this, but this is verse 8, or read that whole passage, but this is verse 8. By this, the Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Again, unto works. That's the language being used here. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. You abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus is again emphasizing what he demonstrated with the parable of the gospel with the foot washing. Jesus is once again emphasizing what he demonstrated countless times throughout his ministry. They will know you by your love. This is 1 John 3, 16 through 18. By this we love, that he lay down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and see his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us walk in word or talk but in deed, in truth. Let us not walk in word or talk, but in deed, in truth. It's easy. It's easy to be known for our love if we fake our love. Because it's easy to act like we love, right? It's easy to put on a show. It's easy, to, as I said, to come into the safe places and act like we have everything together, act like we actually love our neighbor, Act like we actually love the person sitting next to us. Act like, you know, we, that, that I, I, I have the love of Christ in us. But Jesus calls us to a second thing. And I think this second thing really convicts us of the first thing. Because I can say I love you, but I can also say, but I don't have to like it. I love you only because God commands me to, but I don't really like you. But no, the second thing that he calls us to, be known for our joy. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Imagine that. As Jesus is walking his disciples to the garden, as Jesus is looking at what it looks like to live for Christ in this world, he not only points us to his love, that makes total sense, but joy. Our world needs more joy. Because when we turn on the TV, what we see is disaster. And we hear people screaming, this is going to hell in a handbasket. When we interact with others, what we hear about is all of the gripes and the problems of our life, right? I mean, it is so much easier to sit around and complain about what's gone wrong in our life than it is to sit around and say, this is what the Lord is doing in my life. 
But where Jesus calls his disciples to as we're abiding in him is to be known for our joy. Imagine as you sit in your workplaces and your coworker is just talking about the terrible day that they're having. How the carpool line, which is a real thing, just ruined their life. I didn't realize how much anger was in my heart until I started the carpool line. Whew, can't wait for that to be over my life. I mean, just, it, it just, this, just the struggle that's going on. It, you know, it, it, it's so easy to just be ruined by the craziness of everything. But imagine if you sat there and what you gave back to them wasn't anger. What you gave back to them wasn't commiserating. What you gave back to them wasn't fellow resentment. What you gave back to them was joy. Because the joy that we have as believers is a joy that is out of this world. The joy that we have as, as believers is one that gets to look at not the present circumstances, not the present pruning, but the end. You see, Jesus changes how we approach this life in every way, shape, and form. We know the end, which is why we got to stand here, be here last night and hear of a death, Claire Holland. And yet it was a celebration of life because we know the end. While she has left her earthly body, she's with the Lord. Jesus changes the fact that we have hope in the future, that we can hear about the present miseries and circumstances and struggles and carpool lines and all stuff. And we know that there's a day coming when all of the tears are gone, when all of the pain is gone, when all the struggle that we have here is gone, and we can rest knowing that in the end, God is victorious. We can know that we have light to speak into the darkness. We can know that we have joy to proclaim, and this joy is not found inside of us by us doing it, but it's found in what the true vine did on the cross. But he points us to a third thing. Be known for our sacrifice. This is verses 13 and 15. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for a friend. You are my friends, and if you do what I command, no longer do I call you servants, for servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. early church was known for many things, but one of the things that it was known for kind of the clearest was its sacrifice not only for each other, but for the unbelievers around them. They lived in a way that this world couldn't comprehend because it's like, wait a second. You, you're, you're operating from a set of laws that this world doesn't recognize. You're not living for self, you're living for other. You're not trying to grab, hold, and live selfishly. You're living sacrificially. I mean, we can see in Acts 2, the early church days after Pentecost, but they were selling their own possessions to give to the poor and to give to each other. You're in need, and you're a fellow believer? Let me help you. You're in need? Well, hey, even if you're not a fellow believer, let me help you because God has given me everything that I might possibly have. I love this language here, friend. Because if the Lord is cutting away at his servants, I think that servant has every right to say, what are you doing? This hurts. Why are you pruning me? 
foolish friend. I mean, even down to the fact that he's given us the word of God that he has said, let me explain what's happening to you. Let me give you the hope of not only your present circumstances, but your future glory. Let me describe for you my faithfulness from beginning to end. I mean, he offered us as friends this understanding of life that unless you're a a believer, you're not going to see. He wanted you to know in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the pain that I, I know we're all going through because we all live in this broken world, that there's hope on the other side of it. As a friend, he, he's coming to you saying, listen, abide in me and I'll abide in you and you will have a hope and a joy and a love and an understanding of this world that your fellow humans will look at and they will wonder about how in the world are you acting like that? Just as we wrap this up, it's so important in this section to understand the cause and effect of these verses because it's so easy for us to slip back into the exact same issue that Israel had before Jesus. You see, Israel had the law. The law is good. The law is righteous. The law is, is, is holy. And they got the law. And they thought to themselves, ah, the way that God will love me, the way that God will honor me, the way that, God, that, I, the way that I can abide with God is if I keep the law perfectly. And they tried their hardest. You know what Israel is here to teach us? Is that no amount of discipline is enough to actually make it to God. If you heard these verses and, and, and you sit back and said, okay, so let me take notes. I need to love and I need to have joy and I need to sacrifice and in doing so, I can abide. But that would be the wrong way to look at these. Now you gotta flip that. The love and the joy and the sacrifice is motivated and propelled by our abiding and remaining in Christ's life and love. We are able to, today to sit here and to know that we are in Christ, that he is holding us fast, and that the fruit that is produced in our life, the good things, the fruits of the Spirit, the supernatural things, those otherworldly things of like, how does, how does that happen? The things that I've seen in your life and I pray that you can see in my life, those things don't come from your effort and your energy and your work. No, it comes from abiding in the vine because Christ has done everything that is necessary for us. As we turn our attention towards communion today, this is what the communion table proclaims. That we are good before God, not because we were a good vine and he, and he chose to you know, accept our fruit. No, we're good before God because he grafted us into the vine and produced the fruit. The vine that we are grafted into is the perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's what this table points to, the, the bread and the cup. And so if you're here this morning and you are a believer, we would encourage you, we'd welcome you to take this table with us so that we can celebrate the finished work of Christ. But if you're here this morning, maybe this is your first time in church, a, uh, somebody brought you, first time just hearing of the gospel, uh, this, this language of abiding and trust and rest, I, I would ask that you just let these elements pass you by. 
Ultimately, we don't want them to confuse you. We don't take them in order to abide. We take them because we are abiding. But afterwards, I'd love to talk with you about the grace and the glory of Christ. Let's pray. We can take these elements. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for the fact that we were grafted into the vine and you hold us. You hold us secure. But I know that um, you are always pruning us. You're pruning us for our good and your glory. You're pruning us because you know what's best. Lord, I know in those moments of pruning, we can question what's going on. Lord, I ask that, that you would allow us to rest in you, abide in you, remain in you, understanding that you, you have what's best for us in mind. You're not, maybe even, you're not hurting us to harm us. You're hurting us to give us life. And so, Lord, if we're in one of those moments now, help us to ask the questions. What do we need to let go of? What dead branches have we been protecting in our lives? What, what idols have we been worshiping? And Lord, just help us in those moments of pruning in these ways for us to better understand who you are. Lord, just be with us now as we take your table. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.